Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 123, or as I like to say, the lucky one, two, three of Drinks with Tony and my guest Todd Goldberg. He's the author of The Low Desert. So Mercury's in retrograde, and you know, I believe only some of that crap, um, until the whole Drinks with Tony server took a dump on Sunday morning, and I lost all of my 122 episodes, gone in a flash, out of existence. Um, but I'm a backer-upper, so I spent too many hours this week finding the backups of all my episodes, putting them in the right spot, but still... I'm 10 episodes shy of all of them. So 10 episodes have vanished. I'm still looking for them on old hard drives and such. And usually I'm really good at backing up. But it's been like a frenzied couple of weeks. And Mercury, you know, Mercury's in retrofitting. So I had um, Todd Goldberg's brother uh, on the show two weeks ago. And I lost that episode. I didn't back it up. Ugh. Lee Goldberg, apologies to you. Go out and check his book, Bone Canyon, as I still hunt for fragments of the episode. They should be somewhere. It hurts. It hurts my soul to lose shows. And I've lost many shows over the last 20 years. Back when we used to have to put cassette tapes in the to go to the, to the board at the radio stations. So when, when, when does Mercury get out of retrograde? Why is the earth spinning on its axis faster than ever? Who do I talk to to get the vaccine? And why is Angelina Jolie not returning my phone? (laughs) My phone calls. It's the stupidest joke ever. Oh, dear Lord. Hey, I'm Todd Goldberg, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. I'm ready. All right. I'm re- I have a drink, even? Yeah, coffee. Coffee's the new booze. <laughs> You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Todd Goldberg. He's the author of Gangsterland and Gangster Nation. His new book is called The Low Desert Gangster Stories. Todd, how are you? Um. Well, I got a couple things going on right now, Tony. Yes, yes. Can, can we just, let's just air everything. Let's air everything. Um, I'm feeling a little nervous because I got the book coming out in a couple of days. And normally right now I'd be thinking like, oh, well, this is going to be great. Like on Tuesday, I'm going to be in a Courtyard Inn in St. Louis in my underwear, eating a Courtyard Inn cheeseburger, depressed about the 11 people that showed up to my book signing. And I don't get that. <laughs> I don't get that doing online events. Well, the, the problem is, <clears throat> I think we're starting to realize that the depression of 11 people showing up and a crappy cheeseburger is better than now. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, what I, I've been thinking about a lot lately is when this whole thing started. So if you're listening in the future, we are, uh, we're a year into the pandemic. Um, remember like the first month where everyone's like, we're going to do a poetry reading tonight. And we're yeah. going to do a short story reading. And we're all going to read the, the Cameron and we're all going to write haikus. Like that was the worst part. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <clears throat> I don't need you reading your, your, your pandemic poetry two weeks in on a Tuesday night. Like I got Netflix, man. I don't need that shit. <laughs> and, and that's when we still had, uh, we had a back catalog of, um, 
of production than Q, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've now reached the end of Netflix, right? You know, like I've always, I've had this sort of vague existential angst about like what's on the other side of the universe. And now that I've reached the end of Netflix, I'm like, so that that's it? That, that's the last forensics? Uh, documentary <laughs> is there like is there like a rolling credits when you hit the end like congratulations thank you for watching it's just we're, we're old, lose you it's just old jack-in-the-box commercials for 15 hours i'm like is that is that rodney allen rippy <laughs> i was wondering where he's been Who, who's rodney allen rippy rodney allen rippy for a brief period of time in the 1970s oh that's right you didn't have tv at this period of time in in our shared childhood for a brief period of time in the 1970s, Rodney Allen Rippey was the adorable child star. And he was the star of Jack in the Box commercials. And then unfortunately what happened is he hit puberty. <laughs> 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 and he was no longer the adorable star of the Jack in the Box commercials. He was just like a gangly 15 year old that no one wanted touching their, their food. <laughs> With his voice changing. You yeah, know, like, I, I get a cheeseburger. Doesn't life go down after puberty in general? Uh, well, no. <laughs> I, think, I think, Tony, that's been established that no. Right, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's something, there's something beautiful about not having hormones bouncing through your soul and brain where you're just like, I just want to play with blocks. And then I think sometimes we go back to that at a certain age, at a certain Yes, time. that's true. Like, I mean, there. I have found comfort uh, in the last year of my life of doing sort of weird mundane things from my past. And sometimes that's just like listening to the Jesus and Mary chain. <laughs> and, then, and then other times it's, you know, like investigating food of my childhood. Like there was a period of time briefly where uh, my wife and I started making um, English muffin pizzas you know, which was oh. like our comfort food when we got home from school in third grade were those little English muffin pizzas. Yeah. We got artisanal, like we got the, like we got the good sauce and the good cheese and they were really good. And that provided comfort for like, you know, March 17th. <laughs> <laughs> but then the foreseeable future became literally foreseeable. And I'm like, well, I guess we can't just eat English muffin pizzas every day. <laughs> That, I, I, what you, I can't believe you didn't start the English Muffin Pizza YouTube channel. It was a thought. We looked at a lot of those, actually. I mean, my wife got into watching a lot of these strange YouTube channels. Like, uh, there's one that she watches that I find extraordinarily entertaining, where it's like um, tribal Pakistanis eating American food for the first time. Oh, my God, that sounds fun. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and it's become such a hit that one of these guys started his own channel. Um, and like, you know, they're eating sausage and eggs or whatever. I, I actually believe that that channel might be the key to long lasting peace between the U.S. and Pakistan. <laughs> you know, there's there's truth to that because just just eat each other's food. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it, it just break bread with people and empathy goes all of a sudden we got empathy is essentially right. Even if we don't speak the same language, we can sit there and just have a have a human need. I mean, you know, what do we do? What, do we, what are we as creatures? We eat, we shit, we, you know, we pee. We, we do a few things. When it, when it comes down to it, we don't got a lot. Right. And when we, we could come together with not so much and have empathy for each other. Yeah, unfortunately, there's money between us. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we got. I know we have money and we got social class and we got and, you know and faith and all those right. things. Right, but when, but yeah. when we get down to it, can we just break bread? Right. I mean, it's like that line from the uh, Jason Isbell song that no one dies with any dignity. Like at the end, it doesn't matter what you felt like for the previous seventy-five years. You're hooked up to a machine and someone's wiping your butt. <laughs> right. And I want to make sure. And that's that... drinks with Tony, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot for coming. For those of you not cutting your wrist, we'll be back next week. <laughs> no, with, when I'm hooked up to a machine and someone's wiping my butt, I want to make make sure to stick around for another 15 years because I want to make I want to be a burden. I I don't want to be remembered for anything, but when my funeral is there, people will be laughing because it's over. Like, I think that's a I think that's a great way to to look forward to the next 50 years or so of your life. You know, here's the here's the truth though about this weird time. I've been strangely productive during this time. Um, you know, I finished this book. So this book that's coming out right now, The Low Desert, I had to turn in um, the final edits and rewrites and everything April 30th. So I was, you know, I was working for those first two months when, you know, when it all seemed like a dream, we were all watching Contagion to figure out like, well, what's tomorrow gonna be like? <laughs> Um, I mean, and dude, we watched Contagion and it is, it is like Soderbergh was on point. He knew what he was talking about. Um, but you know, I wrote that and I felt pretty good, you know, about the rewrites and I felt like I'd done a nice job and I wrote some scripts and, you know, wrote some other fiction, wrote a bunch of essays. Like I was, I was churning stuff out and really the only thing that has stopped me in terms of my creativity while stuck at home is uh, just worrying about the book coming out. <laughs> oh, and and the end of American democracy. That there was that period of time too, when I was a little concerned. Like when yeah. there was the coup. Remember the coup? It, it feels like it was years ago. It, it does. <laughs> but I got to say, the the, the 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 styling of the coup <laughs> was was on point. <laughs> One of the best coups. <laughs> it's and, one of my favorite coups. Yeah, no, I mean, men with facial hair with you know hot bods. I'm like God. going, I'm like going. That might be my people. You know, I was talking. Uh, I'm going to drop a name here real quick. You yeah, mind? drop them. Drop, a name? drop um, I was talking to Brad Meltzer, uh, who is my good dear friend, um, and we wrote a book together a couple years ago. Um, best selling book, right? Was that best selling book? book? A, yeah. a, frankly, a huge, a huge best selling book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like New York I, Times, twenty weeks best. Like I'm not, like I'm not going to say it was six weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, but six weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, anyway, um, I was talking to him, and he's like, "Everything that I do, that everything that seemed stupid and weird, and could only happen in a Brad Meltzer book. Oh, president is you know a Russian agent, and they're colluding with white supremacists, and there's bodies being found underneath the Rose Garden." He's like. None of that stuff is preposterous now, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Like everything that seemed absurd. There's an old book um, by a writer named Tom Artes, um, the title of which has just escaped me, but it was about a president. This book came out in like 1971. It was about a president who was, in fact, a Russian uh, plant who had a strange, possibly incestuous relationship with his hot blonde daughter and who turned America into an active coup. This book came out in 1971. No one can remember because I can't even remember the name of the title. 
um, <laughs> by Tom Ardies, who also wrote this great book called The Suitcase is Going to Explode, um, which is about a guy who's walking around with a nuclear bomb in a suitcase. And it had, the, a, had a great cover. It had one of those covers that when you moved it, it like the actual suitcase exploded. So that was cool. No way. Yeah, it was awesome. What year was that? Because that's oh, like, that was like 1973. Oh my god, and that that's like that's instant bestseller right there because yeah. that's inventing that that's reinventing the whole medium. Yeah, it was so cool, and he was he was an interesting dude. And actually, I, I ended up meeting him years later because he lived out here in um in the desert in Palm Springs where I live, and so he was he was friends with my mom and this is a long way to get back to that story, but like once he became friends with my mom, I was like, oh my God, I read The Suitcase is Going to Explode and this book whose title I can't remember. And she's like, oh, well, we should all go out to lunch. And so we went out to lunch at this restaurant called Cedar Creek Inn in downtown Palm Springs. And, you know, I spent like 40 minutes grilling this poor dude about a book he'd written, you know, 20 years earlier. Like, tell me more about The Suitcase. Is it going uh -huh. to explode? <laughs> and he was very nice and very kind, um, which, you know, I don't know if I, would, if I would be the same. All that to say, like, he, this dude wrote this book and he lived long enough to see it because he died last year. So he lived long enough to see his book become reality. Like, what a weird, strange time that we're living in. Yeah. Did, did he have anything to say about it? Or was he just like, oh, yeah, I knew this. Oh, I don't know. I hadn't I hadn't talked to him since uh, since my wham period when I looked like Andrew Ridgely. When I had the oh, man, you did too. <laughs> it was sexy. I was I, I would have been like. In high school, I would have been like, I'm friends with that guy. I want to be, <laughs> I, I want to be George Michael to his Andrew Ridgely. Well, we could have been, you know, we didn't grow up that far from each other. You know, I was in Walnut Creek and where were you? I was in Millbrae. Yeah. We could have met up on BART on the way into the city, gone to City Lights together. Yeah. Getty scream at us and run out on the other side. <laughs> right, right. And remember all, remember all the strip clubs that were yes. on? I when we were so when my friends were old enough to drive a car, you know, and I was like 14 or 15 and would sneak out, they would have like there were all the barkers were out, mm -hmm. all, all, the, all the strippers were out on the street in those days, all scantily clad. Right. And, and, me, and, my, and me and my friends would be in the car driving, just dri making U turns with hard ons for days <laughs> just just like glancing at these things just going oh my god and then um and i remember one of my friends drove up to the because the prostitutes were right there yeah i drove up to one and he's all how much and she's all oh you boys are too young come back when you're 18 and we're just sitting there going she's talking to us she's talking to us and she's got a broad <laughs> You know, it's funny. I've been I've been thinking about my childhood a lot lately um, because I keep getting asked, you know, about, you know, like, why do you think about the things you think about? Because like a lot of these stories in the new book are, you know, I do, you mean, do you mean the low desert gangster? Yes, story? that one. Yeah, yeah, gangster yeah. stories. Like, why, why am I obsessed with these things? And I just wrote this piece for um, for Crime Reads. It's going to come out and um, it'll be out by the time this is up. But about how like when when we were kids in the Bay Area, so I lived in the Bay Area until I was uh, until I was fifteen, and then I moved to Palm Springs when my mom got a job down here. Uh, but then I would go back and forth to the Bay Area, you know, pretty much all through high school because I still kept in touch with all my friends um, over a thing called the phone. Oh yeah, this, yeah, it was a device that would ring, and then you'd pick it up, and there'd be a person on the other end of it. Right, and it was usually in the kitchen. Yeah, I was in the kitchen and had a cord that could stretch the entire length of the house. 
Um, we will put the we will put the communication device right next to your refrigerator where it belongs. It's where the the constant hum of the electricity is good for you. Um, but so you know, I've been thinking about like why I am this way, and sort of researching all the crazy crimes that were happening around us as we were growing up. Like in the 1970s, uh, we had a we had a house in Capitola. We had a a, um, a vacation weekend house in Capitola, which, which is a beautiful place to have a yeah. house. Yeah, and and I barely remember it because my parents got divorced in 1973 or 74, so I was like three. I have like I have flashback memories, but but nothing really concrete. But I was talking to my siblings, and I was I was like, oh god, you know, remember all these crazy murders that happened when we were young, and people that we knew that were you know victims of violent crimes. We're talking and then Lee's like, uh, Lee, who's been on your show, we'll get to him in a minute. Lee's <laughs> like, well, you remember that time that serial killer killed everyone at our neighbor's house? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. And it turns out like in that period of time, there were all these serial killers operating in and around Santa Cruz and Capitola. There was like five active serial killers. But and then, and like, and they were doing that from like the 19, like early 1970s, like 1981, they're active serial killers in that area between Santa Cruz and San Francisco. But at that same period of time, like when I was 10 or 11 years old, I'd tell my mom, hey, I'm going to take Bart into the city. And she'd be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and how old were you when you were, when she, when she was said, okay. like, like, so we lived in the Bay Area until I was 15. And there was no point in time where if I said to her, we're going to take Barton to the city where she would have had a question about it. Wow. Like if I was eight and was like, hey, I'm going to go to an A's game. She'd be like, okay, have it's fun. It's interesting because in those years, you had actually more access to San Francisco than I did because Bart didn't come down that far. Oh. So, so there wasn't ease. There wasn't ease to go to San Francisco. There was Caltrain, which took you to the very scary Fourth and Townsend. <laughs> and then you'd have to walk through Barron Soma and possibly get mugged or raped right. so you got to market street and could get somewhere but it's weird that like i think um i think probably miles wise i was closer to san francisco but mm -hmm. because we didn't have the bard access it was further away from us it was, yeah. it was more of an anomaly we had to get a friend that knew how to drive and we'd have to tell our parents we weren't going to the city we were going to bible study right well as jews we didn't have that you know, we didn't, if I had told my mom I was going to Bible study, she would have been like, lock the door. Yeah, 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 don't go house. out. But, but, but serial killer San Francisco, here's yeah. your money to go. Like, oh, the, the East Area Rapist is out? Here's $5, get an Orange Julius. I want you to be a part of history. <laughs> I know you'll never write a book. You'll never have a can in a book. I want you to be a part of history somehow. Yeah, I mean, I and maybe I'm thinking about this stuff too, like about our childhood, because I don't know about you, but like I've been having super vivid memories uh, this last year and really vivid dreams. The vivid dreams were more um, present earlier on during the pandemic, they've sort of lessened. Um, but like I'm having memories of things that I hadn't thought about forever just pop into my head. And maybe it's because there's so much less stimuli, right? Like, you know, I'm not going out into the world. I'm not having new conversations with people. Um, I'm not meeting anyone new, which is a mitzvah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe my, maybe all of our brains are, are, you know, retrieving space and like, here's the thing you should regret from 1992. <laughs> 
like I need more of those. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, remember this embarrassing thing that happened to you in 2004? Let's examine it tonight, 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then let me screw up your day for three days after that. Yeah, exactly. You just remember parts of it from the dream, but then you'll fill in more blanks because you'll be like, oh, wait a second. Did I do that? <laughs> and this has also been that strange period of time where I'll be in a bad mood or angry with someone from something I dreamt because it's the closest I'm having to interaction. <laughs> it's so weird that we have to have conflict in a weird way every day that we've actually lost conflict and lost even like seeing people's expressions and going, well, that person's a, pe- you know, that person's a douchebag. Right. That seems like a nice person. And that stimuli is so important. Yeah. It freaks me out how much we need that. Well, and as writers, you know, in order to convey the human experience, um, I like I, part of what I really like to do is just, just go out and do nothing and just listen to people talk and yeah. observe people and see how they're dressed or whatever. Like, I just like to go to Target and buy some Nutella, but just wander every aisle listening to people fight, you know, or listen to people scream at their children. There used to be a Target right by our house. And um, this neighborhood that I live in, is sort of weird. So I live in uh, a big gated community on a golf course in a lake. So I live in the bougiest place you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and about a mile to the west of me, um, is the actual central hub of the Mexican mafia. It's this um, subdivision that if you, there's only one way in and one way out. So it's shaped like a horseshoe basically. And the only way in and out is at the top. And there's a sign, you know, a stop sign, not far that's, uh, that has scrawled on it, NWS, which is no warning shots. That's what that stands wow. for. Wow. And it's the home of the Mexican mafia. Um, and every couple years, the FBI will raid it and they'll arrest like 37 dudes. And, you know, it's like they, they get their equilibrium and it's fine. And, you know, these dudes don't want anything to do with me. They don't care about me. You know, I'm not, I'm not actively involved in the drug trade. Right. Um, but so where the super target was located is directly between the bougie neighborhood I live in and the home base of the Mexican mafia. And you go into this target on a, you know, on a Thursday night or whatever. And it would be a bunch of people look like they robbed a banana republic doing their shopping. And then a bunch of dudes with face tattoos chasing their kids around Target trying to buy some wool light. And it's just like everyone's just having the same experience. Like, I just got to get out of this Target, man. I just got to get out of here. Someone grab that kid. Someone grab that kid. And the Target was never tagged. Like, there's never people stealing from there because those dudes are like, this is my Target, man. Like, I need this Target. This is where I get my shit. And just being in there would remind me like at that base level, like we're even like these full on straight up gangsters and me, like we all just have these sort of basic human needs. And on a Thursday night, I don't want to hassle him. He doesn't want to hassle me. He just wants to get some some cream because he's got an itch. And I just need to get some Nutella because I got an itch. And there I, we all are. I I I I'm, I think there's a um, there's a hip hop group starting in your brain uh, of the bougie side of the uh, target where you know it's just like he got the itch, I got the itch. You know, is I'll look into that. I'll see if I can drop some bars. What well, don't you live near uh, uh, DJ Ren? Uh, I'm yes, a member of NWA does live in my neighborhood. He's he's very nice. I wave at him and he waves at me. 
I, have you geeked out on him? Have you said, "Hey, I like you"? <laughs> no, I give him, <laughs> I give him his personal space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you like pop out your NWA T-shirt and just kind of walk slowly in front of this place, like, hoping not. he, hoping he acknowledges you? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I do not. Can you tell I would be a problem living in your neighborhood? <laughs> well, I mean, the bigger problem living in my neighborhood is there's, you know, I, I'm in California, so the majority of people are, I presume, are fairly liberal. But um, like there's one dude who lives down the street who's got this giant Trump flag in his garage. And it says, Trump 2020 taking no more shit. Oh, dear Lord. And so every day, like when I'm walking, I'll walk by his house and I'll be like, seditionist. <laughs> Sedition. Coup d'etat. Not in the circle jerk sense, just coup d'etat. <laughs> um, it, it almost feels like visual rape. I mean, it's just like, that's like screaming at you every- You're gonna want to cut that. <laughs> Why? What did I say wrong? I, I don't edit. So, so now, I gotta, now I gotta take responsibility for what I did. <laughs> it's more of an assault, I think. <laughs> oh, I escalated it. Yes. I escalated it. Okay, it's a visual assault. Yes. Okay. Um, but you know, the my larger problem is that I, you know, I like to, I like to talk shit, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> and what will happen is I'll go on to next door and I'll see my neighbors being like the 5G towers and George Soros, they're infecting, you know, I go, come on. And then I'll, you know, I'll say some shit to them. And, and then I'll realize, oh, I'm actually talking to a woman that lives on my street. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> And there's my face. And if you Google me, you're going to find out everything you want to know about me. <laughs> right. Including this podcast. Yeah, which I apologize for in advance. But I can't stop myself. <laughs> yeah, and that's what, that's what freaked me out. I can't believe that I haven't had you on Drinks with Tony. And I totally screwed up in my head because we have interviewed when I did that article in the San Francisco Chronicle on you. And but there's this cognitive di there's this cognitive thing where I'm like, wait a second, why have I had your brother on, and not you? I've why have you had my brother on? <laughs> yeah, and, and um, oh, he well, he gives good podcast. He's he's a he's he's, he's a, a professional. He, yeah, yes. I mean, if there's one thing that is true about the Goldberg crime family, um, all you need to do is say, hey, I'd like to interview you. And it will be broadcast and we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're broadcasting Santa Cruz now on a, um, a KPCR 101.9 FM on Thursday nights. Oh, perfect. I look forward to, uh, to reaching the outer uh, bits of Tiburon. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, no, no, it doesn't go up that far. I, I, heard, I, I heard it goes to uh, Monterey and almost and it's Los Gatos to Monterey that's the range gotcha yeah so well, um, once you get to Benicia that's when you know that you've <laughs> you gotta when get you <laughs> when you get to Benicia that means you need an engineer you need a studio that that's when it's high class <laughs> well you know the cool thing about hearing my brother on your show is I can um I've, I heard what lies he said and this way I can back him up if there's any questions about any of the stories that he told. <laughs> Did he tell I, like, I listened to my brother's media to make sure that, number one, that he mentions me. 
Yeah. And number two, if he's made up some egregious lie that I'm not like, no, Lee was never a Navy SEAL. Wait, he wasn't? Of course he fought in Iraq. <laughs> Did we talk about you on the, you know what I do with these is like, this is the only part I remember. And then I just, I don't listen to these episodes ever again. I just check the levels and I post them. Because if I listen to them, nothing will ever get online right. or, because I'll hear myself and right. I'll never do it again. So like, this is the only part I can really, people go, oh, I loved when you talked to Todd about blank and blank and blank. And I have to remember this day, not when they listen to it three weeks from right. now. It goes up next week, but whenever they grab it, they're just like, oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's the same for us on uh, on Literary Disco. You know, we've been doing Literary Disco since 2012. So we might be the second longest running literary show other than your own. Um, and in that time, you know, we've done 200 episodes or something. I've listened to a complete episode twice, maybe because I can't stand to hear my voice. I can't stand to hear writer's voice. And I can't stand to hear Julia's voice. <laughs> yeah. And, and, well, I think it's, it's just, it's nice to, um, well, I, I mean, I, you know, I used to do college radio and pirate radio. So when we were on the air, we were on the air and that was it. And right. there was, and I, if I had enough money to get cassette tapes, I could actually tape the shows, but I don't have a lot of those. So it was always like, we're on the air and it's over. There, there's no right. podcast. There's no nothing. You had to listen at a certain time. Have and, you uh, found um, during this time that you've listened to more um, podcasts and stuff? I, I, I found myself super addicted to listening to things at night. Like it's the one way I'm able to fall asleep now is listen to someone talking about something I'm kind of interested in. And 12 minutes later, I'm, I'm fast asleep. Oh, that's that's funny. I ha You know, I listen to less. I think it's because I would listen to podcasts in my car when oh. I was driving. And so that's kind of, the, the, I've lost, um, I've kind of lost touch with a lot of podcasts I used to listen to because uh, who wants to listen yeah. to a podcast at home when I used to listen in my car on the, as I would drive to my night classes at UCLA through the terrible Hollywood traffic, cursing everyone as I got to Hollywood and then West Hollywood and then Beverly Hills. <laughs> and I was just like, it was just like, it was just constant, like, just stay in your Zen spot. You got three hours in a room to work a classroom. These people will die someday. And then, you know, get to the parking lot and it's just like, okay. You know, years ago when I taught at UCLA, um, we, I moved to Palm Springs. And the only way that I was, that I could actually say like, all right, I'm still going to teach in person was I did the math. And I was like, look, it takes me two hours exactly if I leave at the right time from Palm Springs to get to my classroom at UCLA. It was the same amount of time it would take me to drive from Sherman Oaks to UCLA <laughs> to oh, get to my classroom. Right. right. So I understand, but you know what? Now that you've been teaching online, you'll never go back to the classroom. You're you're forever in your house. I don't. I can't. I want to be back in that room. I want to smell the fear and sweat of people <laughs> who think they're writers. Oh, <laughs> I want to. When I'm crushing their dreams, I want to taste their tears. I, what, I, you know, there's a beauty to crushing dreams, though, because I, I, I love like week nine and week 10 where people go, wait a second, writing's hard. And you're just going, okay, because they're not going to put in the time. They just thought they would get some quick, you know, you just do this and do that and then you're done. It's just like, oh, no, I got to show up every day. I right. don't, I, I'm not going to do it. And you just, you want to give them a hug and go, I'm glad you learned. I'm glad you, I'm glad you got everything you needed out of this workshop. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Like when I was talking about earlier about how productive I've been during all of this, it it really is true. Like, you know, I've got, you know, I, I direct 
an MFA program. So I've got a hundred students at any given time that I'm in charge of. Plus, you know, 15 faculty and all those folks. And, and listeners, Tony has come out and guest taught for me and he's a fantastic teacher. So if Aww. you can take a class with him at UCLA, you should do it. Oh, wait, wait, um, can, can we just have a moment of silence? Yes, we can. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, go ahead. Um, but, you know, that ability to put your butt in the chair and work even when the world is on fire and the ability to be persistent and to replicate, you know, excellence, frankly, over and over and over again to write a book or a story or whatever. Like that's the difference between the people that want to do it and the people that end up doing it. You know, the, the, the duplication of excellence and persistence is really important. And, you know, you not, maybe it was a year ago, you had one of my all-time favorite students on the show, um, Lisa Jacobs, um, who had been my student at, at UC Riverside. Um, and who's a fantastic writer. Yeah, and, yeah. Good job there. Not bad, not bad. Not bad, yeah, not bad. And, you know, she was one of those writers that, you know, even when she was angry or depressed or worried, you know, no matter what, when she put herself into her chair, she wrote. And she wrote great stuff. And she was able to channel whatever was going through her into good stuff on the page. And, you know, for the aspiring writers out there, like, that's the difference. Like, the ability to, to take whatever it is you're feeling when you sit down in the chair, synthesize that into, take that emotion, synthesize that into a completely different story that someone can find enjoyment or relief from. And then it turns out you're a professional writer. And also be ready for the bad days. I yeah. That it's, it's getting through the bad days. And, uh, and just knowing there are bad days. There's, I right. got nothing. I got nothing. All I'm writing is crap. It's utter crap. This is going, but you have to write the crap to get to the gems. Yeah. It's like, it's part of, even when you write your first terrible novel that never gets published, that's how you learn how to write a novel. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, right there. I'm pointing yeah. to it on my wall. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Not a good book. Shouldn't have been published. Oh, it got published. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. The the amount of the amount of poetry I wrote between like 18 and 25. I'm so lucky there was no internet yet because it's gone. Yeah. I, I worry about that with the writers that are coming up today. They're like, I'm putting all of my rage poetry on Twitter. I was like, hey, you know what? One day when you're up with the Pulitzer and someone's writing that exhaustive essay about you, and they're like, in 2029. Juliet wrote this poem about her 14 year old boyfriend like oh my god get this off the internet scrub yeah. the universe yeah That's but I'm just happy that there wasn't um social media when I was in college or you know Instagram or anything like that because I was a moron and I would have done and I did plenty of moronic things and I don't need to have photos of it on the internet forever right yeah there's that and then there's also so much noise where everyone's doing it all at once where it's just like how do you sift through vomit and who, want, and who wants to? Well, someone's doing it to find out if there's viruses, right? There's those people that have that job that, to go through the sewer system to see what the virus level is in waste. Really? Oh, yeah. It's one of the most effective ways to find out the transmission of the coronavirus is to test wastewater and find out what the virus levels are. I wonder what they get paid. Because that, that's got to be really, that's got to be like, Oh my God, I'm getting $250 an hour. And they're putting their fingers into like, you know, people's excrement and going, I wonder, <sighs> smelling it. I wonder if it's this one. Can you smell my finger? I assume that they work at like Berkeley or something. Oh, so okay. They, you know, they're, they're salary and they got benefits and <laughs> like 
someone someone's paying like no one is just like a hobbyist with that right like well i got a bunsen burner and i've got a microscope and i found the wastewater let's find out what's in it <laughs> i i think there's a book there the guy who's the hobbyist who wants to be in the lab but... <laughs> that's not a guy i want to meet <laughs> Not a guy I ever want to meet, but also like, you know, they're doing, they're doing amazing work. Those are the people that, you know, are figuring out how to save our lives. But like, I don't understand how my television works. I don't necessarily need to know how they're solving the virus. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting a colonoscopy this year, you know, so I don't, I don't need to know the ins and outs. And I say that as innuendo, but uh, let's, you know, just, just put it in put me out and, uh, and then give me a clean bill of health. <laughs> well, I look forward to that episode. <laughs> I, I was thinking, I was going to ask them if I can video the monitor. Oh, Jesus, Tony. Uh, no, <laughs> the answer is no. No, no one wants to see that. Yeah. I, well, I, I don't just, well, just, it's almost like, but sometimes people want to see sonograms of women who are pregnant. Well, like, yeah, oh, because there's cute. a human life involved. They, yeah. No one wants to see if you have a polyp. Right. And I'll be like, oh, my God, look at that. Look at that clean. Oh, Tony's having a polyp. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever said that. Yeah. And if there is a polyp, then it comes back. The next, you have to go back the next year to make sure you're clean. So it's just like, oh, my God, I had a there was a polyp. I would name the polyp. Oh, God. <laughs> I would call it Todd Goldberg. Jesus. <laughs> now I'm actually personally offended. I hope you're happy with yourself. <laughs> no, it's like having a pet and naming it after one of your favorite people. I will put you in my next book as a villain, as a pedophile <laughs> villain. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Speaking of pedophile villains, I, I watched the butterfly effect. I can't wait time. to see what the second half of the sentence is. Go ahead. <laughs> it's gonna it's 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 not gonna live up to the first half. I watched the butterfly effect for the first time in my the life. Ashton Kutcher movie? Oh my God. When I was young, I thought it was like a demonized movie, so I couldn't watch it. So I never like I never put it on my radar. And then I was just like, wait, Eric Stoltz is in this? And then Eric Stoltz plays a guy who's videotaping his kids naked and he's like a pedophile in the movie and not a good pedophile by the way his unsuccessful one or he's or he doesn't he's not good at picking up children no he just he's he's not good at the role of a pedophile oh right (laughs) which which part of me is just like i'm good i'm glad you didn't do that so well (laughs) it's upsetting when someone who admires you clearly is is plays a good pedophile like you don't want that oh oh no it was so weird i'm like this is and it and it was just i mean the movie is not good at all i thought it was gonna be great because you know with those movies that you can't watch when you're younger right and you're like oh my god like it's gonna be this is gonna shatter everything and give me a new reality and it's just like eh. yeah well you know what interestingly enough like one of those movies for me was uh altered states like that was a movie that everyone was talking about when I was a kid and I couldn't see because I was, you know, nine or something. And then I saw it when I was 14 and I was like, this is altering my reality. This is a great movie. And then I haven't seen it in many years. And I wonder if, if it's still a good movie. It, it, it probably smells like 1981 um, in yeah. a really visceral way. <laughs> was Matthew Modine in that movie? Because I never saw it, actually. No, Altered States was, uh, was William Hurt. Oh, right, right. And he goes into those uh, those deprivation tanks 
And he starts, you know, like attacking people on the streets and things like that. In my mind, I also confuse it with body heat, which came out at the same time. So I might be slightly combining them. Body heat's the one where he's in the tub with Kathleen Turner, right? Is there nudity in it? Oh, yeah. There's hot sex and nudity in body heat. Oh, wow. the title, body heat. Right. Um, yeah, it was. that's a noir movie. Altered States is sort of like, a, you know, it, it's... It, it combines all the things that you knew were going on in the 1970s where people were like, you know, altering their own realities and getting into S-like groups and things my mom was involved in, you know, weird Bay Area cult behavior, basically. What, what was your mom involved in? Did she, was, what was the weirdest one she was involved in? Oh, gosh, my mom was involved with any and all of them. So the thing about my mom, and there's lots of things about my mom, but she um, she had a real affinity for sociopaths. <laughs> like if you were a sociopath and sort of a like a liar on top of it, and it's like, oh, I'm a prince and I run a company where we sell um, uh, energy drinks that will improve your your intellect. My mom would totally believe it. Um, so she was always involved in like est and herbal life and things like that but then she'd get involved in like these small group um probably just like you know multiple sexual partner type things <laughs> that she was involved with in the 1970s but she was also she had crazy friends um like pat loud who you know was in the loud family and who just passed away recently pat loud was her literary agent for a little while and so she would be hanging around with Pat Loud and all of her sycophants and doing strange things. Um, but my mom existed in a strange area in the Bay Area when, when I was a kid, which was that my dad had been in, um, in TV news and my mom was a journalist. And for a little while, my mom would dabble in um, like sort of like daytime broadcasting, like she'd guest host, you know, AM San Francisco and things like that. And so she was kind of like a minor local celebrity where she'd, you know, host fashion shows and stuff like that. But she was also a single woman with four children who liked to date mid-level crime bosses. <laughs> <laughs> and so she bounced around these weird socioeconomic criminal worlds all the time and would always bring home strange, you know, strange men. She was so lonely that she would bring home just, you know, whomever whomever showed her any interest but she was deep into est for a long time like she thought Werner Earhart was was a genius and for a long time we had all these protein powders that we kept in our garage that she was selling to improve vitality like Jesus Christ mom all these protein powders that like the 70s and early 80s was a time of great protein powder proliferation <laughs> right Co cocaine and protein powder yep and all these guys named like Warren or Howell like no one like no Scots. It was like, I'd like you to meet Holden. Oh God. I'm Howell. Who would name their kid Howell now? That's H O W E L L, right? Correct. Yeah. Perfect. I can't, I can't fathom anyone going, he looks like a Howell. <laughs> there was one guy that she dated actually. <laughs> she dated this guy named Al Cohen and Al Cohen um, sold Seiko watches and Seiko watches, you know, for listeners that are under 70 years old, Seiko watches are sort of like knockoff Rolexes. You know, you can get them for a hundred bucks. And, but Al thought Seiko watches, you know, like that was the height of luxury if you had a Seiko watch. And so she dated this guy and he was you know, like, he was sort of like a, 
as I as I understand it now, basically, like they met in a Ponzi scheme. So she was involved in my mom loved a pyramid scheme. So she met this guy at this pyramid scheme where part of it was, you know, if you put in five hundred dollars and you brought in three people, you'd get a Seiko watch and you'd get a thousand dollars at the next meeting. You know, just sort of a classic scam. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, my mom loved pyramid scheme, always involved. She was always looking for some get rich quick thing. Um, and this is, a, this is a memory I, again, that I'm calling up from the deep past. It just came to me just now. But anyway, so she was dating this guy, Al, for a long time. And at Thanksgiving, he came and brought Seiko watches for all of us. And so I was like 10. And he gives me this Seiko watch that, like, you know, I was a tiny little kid and had a face like I was wearing a clock, like Flavor Flav on my wrist. Just a giant, you know, gold-plated watch that I'm supposed to wear to, like, you know, my my AYSO games playing for the Tauntauns, you know, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play midfield and score four goals while wearing a fucking Seiko. Um, and, but he gave us all these gaudy, gaudy watches and you know, and my mom was like, you have to take care of these watches. These are very expensive, very valuable watches that Al is giving it to you as a, you know, it's trust. He's going to be in our lives for a very long time since he gave you these watches. And a week later, they broke up and that motherfucker came back and took our watches. No <laughs> way. <Yes. laughs> Lost your Seikos. <laughs> oh, my God. And I think they broke up because the pyramid scheme dissolved. I think that oh. was. Wait, how, and what was it like when you, you, you meet someone like that and you're like, oh, this guy's going to be in my life for a while. And then all of a sudden he's out. It was weird. I mean, it happened so often. Um, you know, when my mom, when my mom died, so this was uh, 11 years ago at this point, um, we were going through all of her photos, Lee and I and my, my two sisters, Linda and Karen, we were going through all of her photos and, uh, and we were going to digitize them so that all of us could have copies of them. And we were trying to figure out um, like how to assemble all of these files together so like we'd know what each one was. And so we made four piles. It was like mom when she was young, uh, family photos, um, holidays, and men mom dated. <laughs> wow. And the, the, the men mom dated was like, I'm, 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 I'm talking like 500 photos of individual men. She was a collector. Like she was in a serial killer novel. And it was always the same. Like, like journalists with secret families and um, divorcees who, um, you know, she met at Toastmasters. And there is, <laughs> I've told this story before, but it never ceases to amuse me. Um, so as I said earlier, like she, and, and this is something really that, has filtered into, I think, the kinds of stories that I tell, mm -hmm. the books that I write. You know, she used to always say like, oh, this guy that I'm dating, he's a spy. And, and we'd be like, what kind of fucking spy tells the society columnist for the Desert Sun that, she, that he's a spy? Right. No one in the CIA is like, hey, Rona Barrett, I'm a spy. So she's, she dates this guy for, you know, a couple of years and then they just become friends. Um, and you know, she'd always say, oh, my friend, the spy called and, you know, he's gonna be in town. So we're gonna go to dinner and I'd be like, all right, mom, you know, whatever. And they're all the, like, she'd meet guys on in AOL chat rooms and they'd fly over from England and take pictures of her China and then leave and be like, 
What was that guy? But anyway, so for 15 years, you know, she had this on again, off again relationship with this spy. And she'd say, oh, his cover is that he plays clarinet on cruise ships. And that's what gets him in and out of countries easily. You know, he can come in and he can say, oh, I'm staying over in port in Yugoslavia or whatever. Like, and, and like she had these elaborate stories that I was like, man, this guy went a long way to have sex with my mom to like create this entire <laughs> backstory. Which kind of is actually a lot of respect. To have yeah, that. like, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 you know, game, re- game, <laughs> recognize game. So this was, I don't know, this was in the early 2000s. My mom calls me and she's like, oh, I'm so upset. Um, I can't remember his name. I'm like, Bob died. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I know you really liked him. She's like, yeah, it's so upsetting. But, you know, if you get a chance, go online and look at the Washington Post because they really did a nice feature on him. I was like, like an obituary. She's like, no, no, you know, because he was a spy. They they did a, a huge piece on him, and I'm like, what the fuck is she talking about? So I go and I look in the Washington Post. This motherfucker who told the Society Columnist of the Desert Sun ran counterintelligence in Kosovo for the United States government, and his cover was that he was playing clarinet on cruise ships. <laughs> oh my god! And I'm like. I'm just staring at the screen like, is has she always been telling the truth about these guys? And also, is our spycraft so bad that like the top counterintelligence spy in Kosovo is just telling a woman he met on AOL? Like, yeah, you know, I do a little spying. Wow. It was crazy. <laughs> Maybe it's so genius because people are like, no spy is ever going to tell people they're a spy. So then it's just like off the radar. Well, they actually are. But, you know, it it goes down to like, you know, I'm obsessed by organized crime and, you know, organized crime is supposedly ruled by, you know, the, the notion of omerta, which is, you know, silence. Well, if they were quiet, we wouldn't know about them. Yeah. <laughs> all they do is talk. All they all these clerks do is talk. So, you know, spies are like, oh, God, well, it's my off day. I guess I'll tell a society columnist, a gossip columnist that I'm a spy on AOL in the chat room. <laughs> yeah, and not think it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. Or, or plus there's that weird uh what do you call it the uh when you're on the internet you feel like you're anonymous. Right. And maybe he was dying to tell someone because he's I'm like, "I am a spy. I am James Bond <laughs> and I can't tell anybody I'm James Bond with a clarinet." Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. And then uh Wendy and I went on a cruise back when that was the thing people still did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you went on a <laughs> pandemic cruise. <laughs> a couple of years ago, we took a cruise to Alaska, which was awesome because we oh, figured yeah. we're going to be old. We should do this now. Um, <laughs> and whenever there was a guy that was in the band, I'd be like, I "Wonder what his story is." Like you'd see, like you know, when you're on a cruise ship, the guy that plays clarinet in the band, you just see him, you know, eating lunch or whatever. And you're like, "Huh, what's his what's his backstory?" Yeah, do you see? Does he have the nuclear football with him, or is he really just playing clarinet in the band here on in the Bali High Lounge? Do you, do you, do you give him a, a cryptic message that he has to like go look up Moby Dick on page <laughs> different pages to get the message? And I just walked by him and was like, "I know who the fuck you are. <laughs> I know what you do." And then the, you, and then the next day you're at port and you're taken away by CIA. Yeah. <laughs> it was a thought that I had. <laughs> Wait, he really was a clarinet guy in Alaska. Just in case something happens in Juneau. 
Juno's a lovely city, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got the Juno Borough. Uh, yeah, Juno Borough. Man, I, I'd love to go to Alaska. Alaska just seems like um, it's our Scandinavia. <laughs> it's our scan. It's our Scandinavia. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we had a great time actually. Um, and you know, cruises are strange, obviously, but um, and I'll I'm not going on one anytime in the near future ever again. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was I was scared even then. And, you know, at, this was, um, I guess this was three or four years ago that, that we did this cruise. Um, and it's a long cruise. You know, it's, it's two weeks. Um, you leave San Francisco, you go all the way up to Alaska and come back down um, with a, you know, a day or so in every port. Um, but even then, you know, the ships were filled with all of those, you know, Peral stations. Oh, and in fact, that cruise ship that was stuck off the coast of California was the exact same cruise ship that we'd been on, like the literal exact ship wow. that we had been on. And so when all the news reports, when the pandemic first started, where Trump's like, well, we don't want that cruise ship coming in and increasing our numbers. I was like, bro, I've been on that ship. I'd want to be off. Yeah. <laughs> Get me off. Like, fine. Dump me in, in Oakland. I'm fine. Just yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scary stuff. Yeah. Todd, wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And and I hope everyone now has a real flavor for the low desert gangster stories. (laughs) Because that's what we do here. We we really just, we dive deep into the book. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. (laughs) Todd Goldberg on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, The Low Desert. Next week on the show, we have two guests. Well, three guests. So let me let me explain this. First, our first guest is Rucker Moses. That's two people. It's the pen name of two gentlemen who co-wrote Kingston and the Magi- Magicians Lost and Found. My second guest will be debut author Sue Beyer. Debut author Sue Beyer is 94 years old, and her new novel, All Things in Time, is out now on Atmosphere Press. So stay tuned next week. Come back, enjoy the show, read a book. Write a book. Have a great weekend.